hear what you want to say to us through your word and by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Those are challenging words from Jesus, uh, that we are to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful even to our enemies. What a challenging passage of scripture. And uh, someday I want to preach on that, but not today. I want to preach on what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's articulating a central doctrine of our faith, the doctrine of bodily resurrection. And we say it in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Uh, in the Nicene Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and uh, life of the world to come. This is central to our Christian faith. And you get the sense here uh, at the beginning of this passage, I invite you to take that out in your bulletins on page 9 or in your Bible. I think it will be helpful to kind of go along with what Paul is saying here. Get the sense that there were some people in Corinth who were skeptical towards this doctrine of bodily resurrection. And um, he is kind of quoting what they're asking when he says in verse 35, Kind of a snarky, sarcastic tone, I think, to this. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Do you expect us to believe this? How is this, hap- how is this possible, Paul? And what kind of body are you talking about? I suspect that the Corinthians, those who were skeptical towards this teaching, were influenced by their culture, just like we're influenced by our culture. Corinth was uh, a Greek city, And Greeks believed in life after death, but they believed that what uh, continues to exist after death is the soul. They believed in the immortality of the soul, not the body. In the Greek mindset, it's the soul that connects to eternal reality. The soul contemplates eternal things, like perfect goodness and beauty and justice But the body holds the soul back from contemplating these perfect things. The body is concerned with the body is concerned with earthly desires, and that hinders us from connecting to these eternal things that we ought to think about and contemplate and be in union with. And so, um, Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, talked about that the body is a prison for the soul. And the hope was that at death, you're finally released from this prison of the body. And you're ushered into eternity where you can engage in this contemplation of perfect things forever in heaven. That was the Greek mindset. So they didn't see any use for bodily resurrection. So they were skeptical towards this idea. Now, of course, we're influenced by our culture as well, aren't we? And I think one reason why people are skeptical about this Belief in bodily resurrection is because we're materialist in this culture. We, we believe, many people believe, that the only thing that exists is matter. Matter is all there is. It's all that can be verified by science. Science is the final arbiter and the only arbiter of truth. Therefore, matter is all that there exists. There is no spirit. There is no soul. There is no God. Walt Whitman great American poet, in one of his poems, said, 
and contemplating his own mortality and death and how he thought about it. He said, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. Is that the best that we can hope for? If you want to see me again, look for you under your shoes because I'll be one with the dirt. I'll just be dirt. Well, Paul is making a case here for bodily resurrection, why we can hope in the resurrection of the body. And why, because of Jesus, we're not destined for dirt. We're destined for glory. We're destined for glory. I want to talk about why we believe this. And then I want to talk about how we can think about this. Paul gives an analogy here, and the intent, the reason he gives this analogy is to say to the Corinthians, this is not as outlandish as you think, this idea of bodily resurrection. It's not so inconceivable as you think. So drop your guard intellectually. So he makes this analogy to, to help with that, how we can wrap our minds around this. And then I want to talk about the significance of bodily resurrection, why this is central to our faith. So first of all, the reason why we believe it, Secondly, an analogy that will help us think about it so that we don't just push it to the margins and say this is so outrageous and outlandish we're not even going to consider it. And then thirdly, the significance of it, of the resurrection of the body. And the reason that we believe in the resurrection of the body is what Paul says back in verse 20. It's not printed in your bulletin, but if you have it in your Bible, you can see it there, but I'll quote it for you. The reason we believe in the resurrection of the body is we believe in the resurrection of Jesus' body. That's the fundamental basis for this doctrine. Paul says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he uses this important image. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, those who have fallen asleep, that's referring to those who have died in Christ. But that imagery of the first fruits is important. When you have a harvest, the first fruit tells you that there's more to come in the harvest. When you plant those tomatoes, pretty soon we'll start thinking about planting tomatoes and cucumbers and things like that, some of us. And you see those tomatoes start to grow on the vine. Uh, you know that more tomatoes are on the way. And you Taste those first tomatoes. You get a sense of the quality of the harvest that is to come. Well, Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of a harvest that is going to come at the end of time. It's the harvest of a resurrection of all who have died trusting in Jesus Christ. So if we're united to Christ by faith, if we are united to Christ by faith, we share in the suffering of Christ, but we also share in the victory of Christ. This is fundamental to Paul's theology. We share in the suffering. Yes, there is suffering, but we also share in the victory of Christ, his victory even over death and the grave. So this is why we believe it. God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul has said in verse 15, now here's a reason why you ought to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. I saw him. 
I encountered the risen Christ. The other apostles encountered the risen Christ. And 500 people at one time, some of whom are still alive, some of whom were still alive when Paul was writing this, they encountered the risen Christ. It's like, go check them out. Go check out their stories. There are people alive today who saw the risen Christ. And Paul is saying, this is why I've given my life to Jesus. He was headed in one direction. He was pursuing one thing, which is to be a leader of the Jewish religious establishment, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he changed course. Why? How do you explain the Apostle Paul's life, the trajectory of his life? He says, I encounter the risen Christ. This is why I'm giving my life to this. This is why the other apostles gave their life for this. Trust us, the eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus alive. Well, the Christians did not sit around and say, let's, let's think about an idea we can come up with to get this thing really off the ground. You know, let, let's market this thing, this, this story about Jesus, and let's, let's say that he was raised from the dead, and therefore, you know, you can have hope for immortality. There was already hope for immortality among the Greeks, at least. They believed in the immortality of the soul. No, they, they preached this message because Paul says, we saw the risen Christ. And so that is... That's fundamental, why we believe in the resurrection of the body. Because God raised Jesus from the dead and says this is the first fruit of a harvest that is to come. The other night I was reading uh, my little girls a psalm as they were going to bed. Occasionally we'll do this, we'll go into the room, tuck them in, and read them a Bible passage. And usually it's something that I've read earlier in the day. And my psalm in the morning was Psalm 49. So I read him Psalm 49. And there's a line in there that says, Man in his pomp, man in his pride, will perish like the beast. Pleasant thought for kids who are getting ready to go to sleep. (laughs) Man in his pride will perish like the beast. But then the psalmist goes on and says, But God will ransom my soul from Sheol. Or I paraphrase it, the grave. God will ransom my soul from Sheol. So I'm teaching my children this. I'm kind of pressing this home. You know, those who live apart from God, who reject God, who rebel God, they're going to perish. But if we trust in God, if we fear God, if we cling to God, He's going to rescue us from the grave. And one of my little girls piped up and she said, Daddy, how do we know? How do we know that's the case? And I gave her the same answer I'm giving you today because He did it with Jesus, our Savior. And if we're united with Him, we share in His victory. That is the basis for our belief in bodily resurrection. And whenever we begin to doubt, when skepticism begins to grow, we go back to that fundamental reality, that fundamental fact of history. Christ is risen. That's the bedrock. Well, some people may ask further Well, how is such a thing possible? (laughs) How how can we wrap our minds around the idea of dead bodies being raised to new life? This just doesn't happen. We don't see this happening. It doesn't make sense, Paul. And so Paul gives an analogy to help try to open their mind to this possibility. And he starts it in verse 36 with great um, pastoral sensitivity and gentleness. When he says, you foolish person, uh, pastors do not try this at home. Uh, I think his patience is wearing thin as an apostle at this point in this letter. That's <laughs> so 
So he says, uh, you foolish person. And then he begins to unfold this analogy, and it's between the seed that is sown and the body or the plant that emerges from the seed. And the first thing he says is that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So first the seed has to go into the ground and die to its seed-like state in order for the body, the plant, to emerge. That's the first thing that he says here in making this analogy. The seed has to die. But then he says what emerges from that seed is something greater and more glorious than then you could ever imagine putting this into, into, the, into the ground. It's not the body that is to be. What you sow in the, in the ground is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other kind of grain. And then we'll begin to talk about the glory of, glory of various bodies. But let's just think about that for a second. You know, for those of you who are gardeners, if you see a tomato seed, you could probably identify that this is a tomato seed and, and what's going to, follow the plant that's going to emerge. But if you're not familiar with the tomato seed and you just see the seed, you can't imagine what plant it's going to be. Um, He talks about the kernel of wheat. I remember as a little boy visiting my grandparents' farm and sometimes they grew wheat and going through the wheat fields and picking the the grain of wheat off the stalks and sometimes popping them into my mouth and, and just looking at these little tiny grains of wheat and then looking at this glorious wheat field. Hundreds of acres of wheat coming from these little seeds. It really is quite incredible when you think about it. We're so used to explaining and understanding the process of germination that we lose the wonder of it. We think because we can explain things that that takes away the mystery of things. It doesn't. (laughs) So explain it all you want, but it's still wonderful that this exists. It's still incredible. We were at a... Josie and I were at a... um, Believe it or not, we were at a gardening uh, uh, meeting yesterday, a teaching on preparing your garden because we want to grow some things in our backyard this year. But uh, the master gardener was there and he was talking about various things and he was talking about the different oak trees that are in the St. Louis area and he pointed out one species of oak that grows, I think it was a white oak, don't quote me on this, but he said this oak tree grows to be about 90 feet and can live for 200 years. You take an acorn, and, and out of that can come something that glorious, that can live for that long? That's astounding. That's amazing. And so Paul is saying, making this analogy, that the body, our body, that is buried, will emerge in a glorious state. And there's an analogy here in nature. And then verse 38 But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed produces its own body. That's according to the seed. So there's continuity between the seed and the body that emerges. A tomato seed isn't going to produce an apple tree. There's continuity. There's something essential there. The genetic material, the genetic essence is the same. It's the same way in the body that will emerge the resurrected body. There's this fundamental essence of identity there, but it's a glorious body that emerges. So here's the analogy. Number one, the seed dies just as the body dies. It has to die for new life to emerge. The body that results from the seed is a glorious body, and there's continuity between the seed 
and the body or the plant that emerges, just as there is continuity between our bodies in this life and our bodies in the next life. God will raise our bodies in a new and glorious form that's difficult for us to conceive of even now, but we'll still be the same person, we'll have the same essence, we'll be able to recognize one another, we'll have bodily form, but it will be in a glorious new state. So the point that Paul is making is this. You know, your skepticism towards bodily resurrection, you need to open your mind and open your eyes to see that it's not as inconceivable as you think. Nature itself gives us an illustration of this. Now, the analogy breaks down because obviously germination is a natural process. He's talking about something supernatural that happens. It takes the intervention of God for this to happen. But it's not unimaginable. It's not unthinkable. We see hints of it, he's saying, in nature itself. Does that make sense, this analogy that he's using? The more I thought about it, the more brilliant I think it is. And one thing that struck me too is that even the natural process behind it is God. See that in verse 38? But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So if you believe that God is the designer of life, the sustainer of life, even causing plants to emerge from seeds, that this was his idea and his process and his design. You have no problem with the idea of God being able to raise dead bodies from the grave to a new and glorious state. So he's trying to open their minds to that idea through that analogy. And then he goes on and talks about the significance of the resurrected body. Again, the Greeks thought really all that matters is the soul, so there's no need for a resurrected body. Why are we even bothering with this notion? But that is not the Christian view. God created the material world. God created the body. When God created the material world, he said it was what? Good. And when he created mankind, he said it is very good. We were made to glorify God in our bodies. We are image bearers of God, and we are made to glorify God even and bear the image of God even in our bodies. But that has been tarnished. That has been disfigured. The image of God in us has been tarnished and disfigured because of our sin, because of our rebellion. So there's this fundamental duality with us now. We're made in the image of God, and that is glorious, but we turn from God, and that image is tarnished in us. But God promises to redeem us, body and soul, so that one day we will glorify Him fully and completely in eternity. Paul begins to talk about different bodies and the different kind of glory these bodies have. In verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another kind. Now think about this, verse 41. There's one glory of the sun. There's a particular kind of glory of the sun. Imagine, think about a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. A particular kind of glory, a particular kind of beauty, luminosity that emerges from that. But then the moon has its own particular kind of glory too. It's glorious to see a full moon on a clear day, but it's 
a different kind of glory than the glory of the sun. And then there's the glory of the stars, he says. These are all different bodies with different kinds of glory, different kinds of beauty. There are subtle differences, and sometimes not so subtle differences. There's the glory of the stars, and then the stars differ from star in glory. So it is, verse 42, he says, with the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. What is the connection here between the glory of these various bodies and the resurrected body? It's this, that the resurrected body fits us for a particular kind of glory, to bear a particular kind of glory. We were always meant to bear the glory of God through his image in our bodies. You know, we talk about in this song, uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. We don't do that perfectly here on earth because of sin, because of selfishness. But in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth, our hands, our bodies will move at the impulse of the love of God. The glory of God, we will see the glory of God. The glory of God will shine in us and shine from us and shine in such a way that other people behold the glory of God and will be enraptured by this glory. It's a wonderful, beautiful vision. We were meant to bear this glory, the glory of God, even in and through our bodies. And so he goes on and he says in verse 42, now he begins to talk about the kind of glory that the resurrected body will have. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, by spiritual body, he doesn't mean immaterial. He means a body that is fit for spiritual reality, a body that has been raised by the Spirit of God, that is fit for heaven. It's really not a denial of the materiality. It's a fulfillment of the material world, a fulfillment of what our bodies was meant to be. And so when we look at a passage like this, we say part of the glory of the resurrected body is that it will no longer be perishable, weak, subject to sickness and illness and infirmity and disease. This week in our household, we were hit with the flu. You know, Josie was battling chills and coughing and Sam got it as well. And so we went through that a little bit this week. We go through this stuff periodically. That's very mild compared to what some people in this church are struggling with physically. The body is a source of suffering and pain and anxiety. We all know it. There are people here who are battling cancer, chronic disease, chronic pain, all sorts of illness and ailments. We have people who are regularly going into surgery to have body places, body parts replaced because the body is perishable that we're in now. When I was preparing this sermon, kind of in the, at this very section on Friday, I, um, I took a break and I went to Walgreens to get something to drink and a snack. And behind me there was this lady, and she was wearing one of these boots on her leg. 
And she's talking about what's going on with her leg. And she says to the clerk, you know, I just had this surgery and now they're worried about an infection and, and now they're giving me these drugs, but these drugs might cause blood clots and I just don't know what's going on with my body. It's, if it's not one thing, it's not. Can anybody here relate to that? <laughs> I know in the choir some people can relate to that. And I thought, here it is. This is exactly what Paul is saying. The natural body is weak. It's perishable. It's a source of pain and anxiety. But God is promising that this will not last forever. This is not the world God intended it to be. Our body was meant to be a bearer of his image, a bearer of his glory. But the most glorious thing about the resurrected body will not necessarily be that it will no longer be weak, that it will no longer be imperishable but that again it will reflect something of the image of Christ himself. Look at what he says at the end of this passage. Verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus, the perfect man, we will bear his image in our resurrected, glorified body the most glorious person who's ever walked the face of the earth. We will be like him in some way, with our own particular bodies and personality, but there will be something of the glory of Christ's character and his love and his goodness that will be reflected in us and through us, in our bodies. Johnny Erickson Tata, who's lived in a wheelchair for uh, over four decades at this point, I believe, in one of her writings, imagines what it will be like to be in heaven, no longer in a wheelchair. And she talks about, maybe I'll run through the meadows, and maybe I'll be able to peel an orange and touch a flower, and all these things I can't do anymore. But she said, the most glorious thing for me is that I will be free of my sin and selfishness, and I'll be more like Jesus. I'll be like Christ my Savior. The best part, she says, I'll not be weighed down by sin and selfishness. We will be body and soul as God intended us to be. So we have this wonderful hope in Jesus Christ. You know, friends, many people today live in the fear, the absolute fear and terror of death because they do not have this hope. Matter is all there is. I'll become the dirt under somebody's shoe. We put our hope, more people are putting their hope in technology to extend life. And I'm glad that life has been extended. I saw recently that in 1900 or so, the average lifespan of a man was in the late 40s. So I would be towards the end of my life if I was living in the 1900s. I'm glad that science and technology has been able to extend life. But one Christian thinker made a distinction between extended life and eternal life. Extended life and eternal life. Extended life is what science and technology can give us. And it can only do so much. Eternal life is a gift from God. Eternal life is the life of God. And that comes as a gift from God through His Son. And there's a great difference, quantitative rather qualitative difference between just keeping life going and knowing God, the creator of life. 
This is the hope that we have. We can experience some of the eternal life now, but not fully. That happens on the other side. Let's praise God for this gift of life, this promise, this hope, and let's trust him for it. Amen.